On today's episode of the podcast, we'll be listening to a conversation I had with Sid Jacobson for the Help Jerry CV Heal fundraiser that we did. Um, there was such an overwhelming response, people wanting to be on this fundraiser to raise money for Jerry CV, that uh, we didn't listen to the entire conversation. We had to trim it down. So I wanted you to be able to hear the whole thing. And so that's what we have for you today. By the way, we're still trying to raise money for Jerry CV. So please feel free to donate now or anytime is convenient for you. Um, there's links below and uh, we always, always appreciate it. You are listening to the Essential Coaching Skills Podcast, a show devoted to uncovering the systems and the secrets that set the best apart, where you learn how to take your coaching clients to the next level, while you grow the coaching practice of your dreams. So sit back and relax, or sit up and get excited. Either way, you might want to pay attention. This could be important. Sid Jacobson, nice to see you again. You too, Doug. Great to be here. Thank you. And just for the record, I'm uh, I'm bundled up here in cold upstate New York, and you're in New Orleans. I'm in New Orleans. Also, a little cool down here. It's getting a little warmer today, but we've had some cold weather too. So I'm a little bundled, and you can hear I have a little bit of a cold too. So can, can you define can you define cold weather for uh New well it got down, it got down to the upper 30s oh. uh, overnight a few times and then mostly it's been in the 40s and 50s and stuff yeah that's cold for New Orleans uh it will get in New Orleans down actually into the teens every now oh. and then uh not for very long but mm-hmm. you know usually usually over the winter time we'll get a couple of nights where it goes down into the 20s and stuff and, and snow occasionally too right i've heard of snow in every the- five or six years we'll get snow something like that usually for a couple of hours and that's about yeah. it yeah. the longest snow we've ever had as long as i lived here uh lasted about a day and a half maybe two days it was on christmas day a oh number my. of years ago but other than that we've never had snow that lasted more than a few hours it just doesn't happen very long of course of course uh, being in new orleans uh, as soon as it snows, everybody gets in their cars and tries to drive on it, which they have no experience in. So it's always fun to watch. You guys, we stay home then and just hear about it later as the number yeah. of accidents increases, you know, exponentially. Uh, no, I'm, I'm, from, I'm from the city of Buffalo in in New York State. Uh, um, just got um, six feet of snow. Right? <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> Parts of the city got six feet of snow literally uh, um uh, and yeah crazy i mean they were measuring it and um comparing it to the heights of different buffalo bills football players <laughs> that's hysterical <laughs> it's great i love it how high was it oh it's the left tackle you know <laughs> oh that's great fortunately i am not anywhere near there so we have no snow here in this part of new york state thank that's that's good i don't expect we'll have any this year either we haven't really had a winter the last two years at all Uh, we just had a freeze a couple of nights last year the year before we didn't have any so i've still got plants that have been out there for oh no kidding seriously wow that's cool flowers yeah it's bizarre yeah hey so um we could talk about this all day. Yeah, we could. Yeah. <laughs> but we've got work to do. Yes. <laughs> yes. Damn it. So, no, seriously, this is a fundraiser. 
um, and we're we're putting the fun in fundraising theoretically. So um, <laughs> we're here to talk about fun things, or at least yeah. some semblance of something would be interesting. And, and, and always and, willing to help out Mary Lou and, and Jerry yeah. too, because Mary Lou, I've known on and off for years, and and they they're good people, so yeah. I can use the help. Anybody yeah. who can help out, that's that's a great thing. Yeah, I mean, we could also get into that subject. The the fact that this needed care for Jerry is out of Maryland's pocket is weird. You know? It's, you know, people in other countries might see this and go, we don't understand. Yes. Yeah. Well, we just don't under, how is this possible? Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, I heard really you, they might, they do. I've, I've talked to them and they are saying exactly that. And so, yeah. It's funny. I, I'll just throw this in. My wife and I were just, well, we've had two experiences like this. We travel a lot and we were just in Indonesia uh, for a month. We just got back a couple of weeks ago and um, she got a sinus infection the first time in 25 years or something. And uh, we found where the clinic was, you know, the hotel is to just go, you know, it wasn't far. And uh, he said, well, we kind of need a ride. It was really raining like crazy there the whole time we were there. And uh, and I called the clinic. They said, oh, we'll provide transportation. I said, really? I said, oh, yeah, yeah. So what's the charge? Said, oh, no, 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 no. We, we just provide transportation. Said, oh, okay. And they came in an ambulance, basically. Uh, they, it was sort of a modified station wagon, really. You know, state of the art, but small. It wasn't like a whole ambulance like mm -hmm. we have normally. Mm -hmm. But and they then they drove us to the clinic, and we waited for a little while. And saw this doctor who was just one of the loveliest people we've ever seen. She was just lovely, just sweet and kind, and she got exactly the same care she would have gotten here. And prescribed exactly the same antibiotic and you know cough medicine and a couple other things, and you know take this for five days and and you'll be okay. And I, I don't remember what it cost. It might have been twenty dollars, you know, something like that. Uh, we just we don't see that here. It was just it was almost free, and the same care we get here in the U.S. and and they drove us both ways, you know, for just to do it. They just took us to and from where we were staying. It was just insane that we don't have that and that we have to do things like this. But it's an opportunity for us to talk anyway. Maybe, yeah, right. maybe some people will, will get some enjoyment out of that. Nice, nice reframe there, Sid. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I try. I was trained. <laughs> yes, yes, people you were trained me years trained ago. Trained in NLP from the yeah, from the from back the in the nineteen twenties. Yeah. <laughs> well, it wasn't quite that far back, but it was the seventies, right? You were you were early. It was the seventies, the late seventies. Yeah. And did they um, come to you? They came to New Orleans, right? They came to New Orleans. So the uh, it was the second NLP practitioner training program. They'd had some other training programs, but the second NLP practitioner training program was in New Orleans, wow. uh, Hilton Hotel, uh, May of 1978, 140 huh. people. Huh. And uh, you mentioned that you've you've already had a talk with uh, Connie Randreas, which she was there uh, with Steve at the time. Were and, they uh, part of the training team? they were part of the audience so steve and i sat next to each other with our tape recorders in between us on a chair uh taping really? the our four guru teachers uh you know richard bandler and john grinder and judy delosier and leslie cameron bandler 
Wow. And uh, wow. it was great training. It was an interesting training. I, I don't know if I told you this before. We were in a giant ballroom. And it was big enough to set up three stages in the room. Uh -huh. So at one end, there was a, a stage. And then at each side, there were stages sort of facing the middle. And back then, I mean, it was 78. They didn't have tons of information like we do now. You could never do, you know, the people try to do practitioner programs in six days. I guess Richard could do it, but, you know, it's not the same program. And so they, they knew a few things back there. The only books that were out at the time were the uh, Structure of Magic, Volume 1 and 2, and the Patterns books, Patterns 1 and 2. And that was it. When was Fox and the Princess, Princess written? Uh, shortly after that. Okay. It was about, you know, within the next year or so, something like that. I don't remember the date, but but okay. that was one of the next okay. books. And then Robert's, uh, you know, NLP Volume 1 came out. It has all their names on it, but that was actually Robert's book. Right. Is this, and, uh, is this something I think you said? Yeah, it was his master's. Uh, and it was his undergraduate honors thesis is what it was. Yeah. Uh, so the training was interesting, though, because we started together. Uh, all 140 of us were together. And the four of them, I think I mentioned to the, this to you before, the four of them walked to the front of the stage and started talking together. So it was a quadruple hypnotic induction, all four of them talking simultaneously, and you couldn't follow. And everybody, you know, 140 of us woke up six days later at the end. And, you know, <laughs> but, but what they did was interesting because there were some people who had had some training with them uh, and some people had, had a, a good bit of training with them. So there were 25 people out of that 140 that they had identified. And Richard took them off to some other part of the hotel. So we didn't see Richard or them a lot of the time. You know, we saw them a few times when everybody would come together, Richard would come to teach something, but, but most of the time they were gone. So John and Judy and Leslie were teaching in the big room and they were doing different kinds of topics. Uh, Judy and Leslie were doing mostly stuff for people who hadn't had any NLP. So it was more basic kinds of things. Mm -hmm. I remember Leslie did a thing on family therapy and, Judy, Judy taught metaphor. I still have the tape of that, of Judy teaching oh, really? how to do metaphor for, for oh. an afternoon. Yeah, I still got it. I, I sent her a copy years ago. She was <laughs> flabbergasted and thrilled all at once. Uh, so they did these different topical things. And I ended up with John for almost three solid days doing nothing but strategies. Just strategy, strategy, strategies. Almost three full days. It was like two and a half days. And then... Um, John did a whole thing on hypnotic induction one at one morning. The whole morning was just on induction patterns. And that's all in uh, transformations, the book transformations, just transcribed in there. And then Richard did a whole bunch of stuff that afternoon on utilization patterns. And that's in a lot of that's in that book, too, and some other places, too. Wow. So that must be where Steve Andreas was recording, because a lot of those transcriptions are from. Yeah. Right next to me, <laughs> yeah. We had tape recorders on the same chair in between us. That's and, so interesting. Uh, I was, we shared I was, the chair. I was just yeah. talking to Connie Ray about you know how they they came to the write those books, and I I told her, and I believe this is true, that it really was a huge, if not seminal, contribution of theirs of Steve Andreas and Connie Ray oh. to oh, create those sure. books. Oh, yeah, beyond words. I, I don't have any. 
Yeah, I mean, uh, even being through the training, those books for me are such great references. Yeah. I have to say too, uh, the book that they did without Bandler and Grinder, you know, Heart of the Mind, mm -hmm. is still one of my favorite books. Uh -huh. You know, people would say, "Oh, that's old stuff." You know, it's it's great stuff. Yeah. It, it's like the self help manual for people in NLP. You know, this every chapter is a technique. And it's a how-to and then a, a set of instructions along with a demonstration. I mean, they did, it, it was a great book. All those books were terrific. And I know that they were a lot of work because they make it look like it was a workshop that they transcribed, but it didn't work that way. I mean, no. they were taking bits and pieces of lots of different things. And, and, and Steve, I guess Steve did most of the editing. I don't know. Maybe Connie Ray and, and Steve did it I together. Think, but I think actually the way Connie Ray described it yesterday is that uh, Frogs and Princes, Princes was mostly Steve's book because he took undertook the, the editing. Right. And then she did um, Transformations. So she was more. Really? Yeah, she was oh, more interested in the hypnosis. That's interesting to know. Interesting to hear because I, I couldn't tell the difference. They're both edited brilliantly. Yeah. I thought they were just. Just fantastic. And, and, and I frankly, will, I will you know, say having having written a book that I thought would be really simple to do because I was going to take my <laughs> my own my, my own transcripts of my own self speaking into a microphone for yeah. the, the tape set that I did for sleight of mouth. I thought I would just have that transcribed and then boom, I've got a book. <laughs> Not really. Oh my God. Yeah, it doesn't come off very well when you do it that way. No, nah, it doesn't. No. It's there's there's some things that you have to you gotta fix, you gotta edit, you have to rework things around and yeah. stuff. And so no, it's a big, it's a big job. You know, and, and it it's interesting because I haven't seen Connie Ray for a long time, but you know, she's done some great work too. The the stuff that she did. The book that she did with her sister on core transformations with yeah. Tamara Andres, and I don't know Tamara, but but uh, it's just a great book. It's just a yeah. great book, and I, I'm I'm plugging these books because there are a lot of people, in, in, even people in NLP, who've never heard of these books. They right. don't know about them, right. and it's just the literature of NLP is rich. It's filled with some great great stuff. the The problem with it is it's so big that people often start in the wrong place. You know, Frogs and the Princes for you or I, people who are therapists or have that kind of background or even an educational background like yours, we can make some sense out of it. But I remember that may have been the very first time I did a presentation for a strictly industry group. And this was for um, the API Trainers Committee. API is American Petroleum Institute, you know, not everybody's favorite organization. But what's interesting is they have a trainers committee and it's all training managers from all the different oil companies. And in that room, they are non-competitive and they're not out to, you know, the, the, all they're trying to do is keep people safe, train people to use equipment properly, train people, everything from their computers to the, the stuff that, you know, it turns oil into gasoline to everything else. And and they are very supportive of one another. It was a very interesting thing because I went to these meetings five or six times over uh, a period of time, being in New Orleans and in the oil patch, right? The oil patch is Louisiana, uh, Oklahoma, Texas, and Arkansas to some extent. Hmm. And so the, all these meetings were in that area, right? So Texas and Louisiana most of the time. 
And so I went to a bunch of these meetings because I could drive to them. And uh, and I was invited. You have to be invited to go. So I would go as a guest of the guy who's the, the head of the trainers committee or, or, or one of his, one of the other people. And um, I remember doing a presentation for them. And it was very interesting because I got near the end of it and they really enjoyed it. And they loved, because I was talking about learning and stuff that was very relevant for trainers and trainers love NLP, of course. And one of them raised their hands and said, you know, we've been hearing about NLP for a while. And we tried to read this book called Frogs in the Princess. You got anything other than that we could read? <laughs> I said, well, yeah, actually, there's a book I think I wrote that maybe you could read that would be a little easier, you know, and I, I told them to get a copy of Medication Volume 1, my first book, because they, they would relate to it, you know, because it was about teaching and learning. And, and even though it was about kids, the, the principles would be the same. They said, thank you, you know, because they, they'd all tried to get through Frogs and the Princess. They couldn't. It was that's, that's, out of their bailiwick. That's just really interesting to me because I thought what I, what I was saying before is that um, like patterns one, patterns two are, you know, they're kind of academic kind of book. They're dense. Yeah, they're hard yeah. to get through. But yeah. Frogs and a Princess for me was like, oh, wow, this is a, almost like a page turner. I mean, I could really. That's what I'm saying for you oh, and yeah. me. But you get into a group of uh, engineers in the oil oh. industry and they go, what are these people talking about? Really? Fascinating. The idea of doing demonstrations and, you know, doing reframing with people and stuff. They're like, what are you, what, what is this? Wow. So how they did they, I mean, by the way, plugging books that people should read your, your medications books are fabulous. They're really, Thank you. I mean, they're Thank really you. super clear. And, and like, like you said, kind of handbooks of techniques to do. I thought they were great. Well, I, I always tell people, I mean, I, the, the only gift I have uh, in writing is that I can make things very clear and simple because that's the way I think. Because that's a huge if it ain't clear, If it ain't clear and simple in my head, I don't get it. <laughs> so that's, yeah. I'm a simpleton, basically. I'm a very, honestly, I'm a linear thinker. I have to do things that way. People say, oh, linear thinkers are stupid. Well, okay, I'm stupid, but I can at least write it down and other people can follow the steps. Yeah. So, yeah. so that, that's the way I think. And, and, and you know, it, there, there has to be that. I mean, all of my books are how-to books. Mm -hmm. And if you look at genres, there are self-help books, right? And I do how-to books. Those are different things. Mm. A how-to book will include steps to do to achieve something, right? And it could be, you know, how to plant a garden or how to fix your car. Right. I do how to help a child who's got a learning problem how to reestablish a relationship with your kids when they've had trouble or how to write a book, you know, in, in the book, the power process that I did with, with Dixie Hickman, who's a college writing instructor or how to solve problems in business. You know, my solution states books, they're how to books. That's what I do. I'm not doing great tomes. I'm not doing great literature, not my intention. And nor am I capable of that. Yeah. never tried um, well maybe maybe why so, i like them so much because i think i my brain works in a very similar similar way i think that's one of the things that nlp has given us in a sense because it took things like ericksonian hypnosis and it gave you like steps to do things like that um and it right. sort of codified things that might have been beyond me if it hadn't been for the nlp inroad to that yeah 
but also my Slater Mouth book is kind of like that. When I got Robert Diltz's book, I, I learned Slater Mouth from Robert Diltz and Todd Epstein at a master practitioner training in, like in 85, 86 in yeah. Santa Cruz. Then when, I, when his book came out, the Slater Mouth book came out of Robert Diltz, I thought, great, this is going to be so good. And like, <laughs> it was, yeah. it was fascinating. It's a different way to, yeah, but Bobby's brain doesn't work exactly the same as everybody else's. Yeah. And he's, he's contributed an entire literature all by himself. Oh yeah. Amazing. Valuable Amazing. stuff to read. And some of it's Fantastic. difficult and some of it's easy. But the yeah. reason, the reason I wrote my book is so that people could understand how to do sleight of mouth. It's called the user's yes. guide. It's a how to book. Sure. So, yeah, so I, I think, I think you and I have a similar affliction. Well, and if you think about NLP, NLP is a how to technology. That's what I'm right? saying. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you, you take, yeah, something like Erickson, what Erickson was doing, or Fritz Perls or Virginia, and try to, to put this into something that's that people can do. You know, I don't know if we talked about this before, but, you know, I started off as a Gestalt therapist. Um, oh, yeah. when I was in my, my master's training to get my, my uh, master's in social work. Is that what originally drew you to NLP because of the connection with Fritz Perls? Uh, I'll tell you the story. It's it's more accidental than that. Okay. We okay. had uh, continue in, on with the first story. Yeah, in, it's it's in in my training in social work. You have a field placement when you're in social work. You actually work in the field at a at an agency somewhere. And I was working in in the French Quarter at a mental health center, and our our field instructor who had the seven of us students around the table with him was a budding gestalt therapist. I mean, he'd been a social worker for probably 30 years. He'd been a professor for 25. Mm -hmm. And he had taken a gestalt therapy course a couple of years before, and he transcribed the whole thing. He just wrote down everything that happened in the course. And that's what he taught us. As if you can teach gestalt therapy by, you know, here, here, just right. look at the blackboard. It doesn't work that way, of course. So we did a gestalt group as well. And we had our own group, I think once or twice a week in our field placement. We got together and did gestalt work with each other. And he kind of monitored and, and, and drove us. So I knew a, a lot about gestalt. And near the end of that training, one of the other students, uh, went to a workshop at the Gestalt Institute in New Orleans. And she came back high as a kite talking about these two guys that had done this training at the Gestalt Institute named Bandler and Grinder. And I went, tell me about these guys. This was 1977, right? So, and she was telling us about the stuff that she learned. And I'm like, keep going, you know, tell me more about this. What, you know, and it was fascinating stuff. And I said, well, I'm going to sign up and continue my Gestalt training at the Gestalt Institute when I finish school, which we did just a few months later. So graduated in December and I started Gestalt training in February. The first workshop was Greg Brodsky, who was a friend of Richard's and, and Leslie's and John and Judy in Santa Cruz. So Greg mm -hmm. is a guy from Santa Cruz. He's still in Santa Cruz. He's an amazing guy. He's a genius, brilliant guy. And he was they sent him to do training because the Gestalt Institute people wanted wanted uh, Richard and John to come back and do another workshop in February, and they couldn't. They had a schedule conflict, and they sent Greg. Said, "Here, take Greg. Greg will do a great job." And he did this awesome workshop. I mean, I just I don't have enough words. There aren't any words for how great this workshop was. And he started off saying, "I'm going to show you how Gestalt works," because you've all probably noticed that some of you are, you know 
better at it than others. And some, sometimes your work works and sometimes it falls apart. I'm going to show you. And he did. And he gave us all these things about, you know, anchoring. He said, it's about states and state dependent learning. And I went, wait, I learned about state dependent learning. I know about all this stuff. And so, and then Richard and John and Judy and Leslie were coming back like three months later or in May. So four months later to do their, their workshop. So I, I signed up for that practitioner program. So that's how I got into it. It was sort of accidental. And it was, it was really just through meeting this person and then wanting to continue my Gestalt training. So that's how I got into it because a lot of Gestalt therapists weren't interested in NLP because they thought it was too mechanical and and some, some of them were afraid because it was too powerful. And some of them because they thought it was too complicated, you know, which I didn't. I thought it was fine. Um, so that's that's sort of how I got into it. And I just stuck with it. And Richard was personal friends with the person who ran the Gestalt Institute down here. So he would come down to visit. You know, he did a few other little workshops and he would just come down to visit. And, and I became one of their trainers, like almost immediately. Uh, when oh. I finished my training. So by the end of, of, of 78, I was a Gestalt trainer as well as, you know, being into NLP. Wow. And, and then Richard, uh, you know, we got to be a little closer, you know, just socially. And then in 1980, I think he said, well, I got to make you a trainer. We're going to do this training out here, come out and, you know, be in two parts and you just come out to Santa Cruz. So I did that. And, uh, I think I might've mentioned this to you before. There were only three of us out of this group of 60 that they made trainers. It was a sort of a combination master practitioner trainer training program. And there was a lot of stuff on stage skills and there was all the stuff on submodalities, submodalities, the submodality distinctions were brand new then, right? They knew about submodalities. They didn't know what to do with them. You know, and speaking of David Gordon, David's book in the back of, of, um, uh, the metaphor book, you know, therapeutic metaphors, which mm-hmm. is a great book. If nobody's, if, if anybody hearing my voice, if you do nothing else and you haven't read that book, that's only a suggestion. I'm only a hypnotist, right? <laughs> so, so uh, in the back, there's a whole thing on submodalities, but it's just using them in metaphor just to make metaphors richer. But then later, you know, they discovered, wait, you make the picture brighter and things change, or bigger, smaller, you know, all that stuff. So, yeah. That was the first training group where they were actually training people to use submodalities to do things. And they just developed the swish pattern. So we were learning to do those. And, and it was it was great fun training, but uh, they only made three of us trainers uh, out of that. Richard said, you know, there were three people who, you know, I want to be trainers. The rest are going to be master practitioners. And, so who besides you? Who, who besides um, you was um, plucked from the... Uh, what was... You're asking me, I'm, I'm embarrassed because my brain is not working well because I have this cold, but you remember Joseph Yeager, Joe yeah. Yeager, yeah, yeah. his, his girlfriend uh, at the time, um, whose name will come up with it at some point. Okay. Uh, but she was the other one who was made a trainer. And then there was another woman that was brand new to NLP and he made her a trainer for some reason we could never figure out. And then she disappeared. We, nobody ever saw her again. So uh, I, I don't know what happened with her. So it was just myself and, and this other person who was a good trainer. She was real good. And so, uh, you know, it just kind of stuck with it. But there were things, even in those early trainings that with, with the practitioner training and the training with Greg, things like state-dependent learning, 
uh -huh. that you and I've talked about before that are so key to everything that we do that most people in NLP trainings aren't even doing anymore. You know, and it's such a simple concept and it's so central. And and I always remember the first time, <laughs> talking about crazy stories, the first time I ever learned about state-dependent learning was in my undergraduate work in psychology. We had this great psychology professor when I went to school at Tulane. And he was not just a great teacher. He was the best researcher in the department, in the psychology department. And he was a terrific guy. I mean, everybody loved this guy. He was just a great teacher and just a great person. And um, he did something interesting right before the midterms. He said, as a teacher, as anybody who does instruction at any level, when I give you a test, I have a problem that I'm introducing immediately. And the problem is this, I'm testing two things. Some of you are great test takers. You're just great. You figure out how to do tests and you can just, you know, work your way through, even if you don't know the stuff that well, you always do great. Others of you will know the stuff cold and you'll sit down at the desk and forget your own name and you can't do anything. Kind of like my brain is right now, right? <laughs> and he said, uh, so I'm testing how good a test taker you are as well as how well you've studied and learned the information. He says, I don't care how good a test taker you are. I'm not interested in testing you for that. So what I do before the midterm, every time I teach a class is, I'm going to teach this entire class today on test taking because I want to level the playing field. I want to make all of you much better test takers. Cool. And we're all going, where have you been all my life? Yes, <laughs> yeah. bring it on, buddy. And he taught us all this stuff about, you know, how to think, how to guess, when not to guess, percentages, and, you know, looking at a multiple choice test. He said, if you got four choices, A, B, C, and D, the chances are psychologically it's going to be more B and C because that's where people try to hide things if they're doing it. They don't know it and stuff like that. And he said, if you can eliminate two, then it's worth guessing. If you're not sure, don't guess because there was, there was actually uh, points off for wrong answers oh, okay. as well as points for right answers. So, you know, to, right. it kind of a, it makes it a little trickier, right? But uh, so it says it's worth it to go for the points or you're, you're better off leaving it blank than getting the negative, right? So, <laughs> so uh, there, all this stuff. And he said, but here's the most important thing. He says, there's a rumor going around this campus that some people uh, the night before a test will stay up all night studying. And to do that, they'll take amphetamines. Now, I know none of the 275 of you would possibly ever do that. Never. The whole place Not cracks up, that. right? We're all rolling on the floor. You know, people are looking in their pockets. Yep, right here, got them. So it was pretty pretty standard practice back then. Uh, now, unfortunately, people are still doing it, right? But he said, I'm not going to make any judgment about this he says i'm going to treat you guys as adults you're in college you're college students i'm going to treat you as adults this is a decision you have to make as an adult he said personally i would rather you didn't take those drugs because i don't think they're good for you but realistically they're probably not going to hurt you that bad and you're going to make the decision for yourself but here's the dumbest thing you can do this test is going to be one o'clock in the afternoon the dumbest thing you can do 
is take those drugs, stay up and study all night, sleep it off in the morning, come in relaxed and refreshed with no drugs left in your system and try to take this test. You will remember nothing. Hmm. That if you're going to study all night on this drug, you have to take the test on the drug. He said, take the pill one and a half hours before. So the drug is in your system. You'll be in the same state of mind, the same state of consciousness you were in while you were studying, and you will have access to all that information because that's the way we work. State dependent. What you learn will be dependent on the state you're in, whether or not you can remember it, right? He said, if you're going to stay up all night on coffee, drink coffee for the test. You're going to stay up all night on willpower, come in tired on willpower, right? If you're going to not stay up, if you're going to be relaxed and comfortable when you study, be relaxed and comfortable when you take the test. Yeah. And you have to duplicate the state. It's the most important thing, more important than any of the things I've shown you about testing. Wow. And I, so that's great. So, of course, NLP, NLP comes along. We go, here's my drug. It's called an anchor, you know. And all you have to do is get yourself into a good state, anchor it really well, and future pace, and and you're there. You yeah, know? St studying in, in that state and being in that state. There was a funny episode, by the way, on um, Grace and Frankie. I don't know if you ever watched that show, but... Um, I, I know the show. I didn't watch it very often. Frankie is played by Lily Tomlin, and she's like an old hippie, so she, you know... yeah mushrooms and smokes pot and yeah i saw about the first five or six episodes or so it's funny and there's one episode where she's trying to you know get her driver's license re uh, returned to her because she'd been yeah. been taken away for some reason so she's studying and studying for this test and she's smoking pot the whole time that she's studying <laughs> and then she goes yeah. and goes in to take the test you know the written test and just yeah. flunks it every time flunks it every yeah. time there's no way <laughs> yeah. And so finally, I think her son says, well, you got to smoke pot before you take the test. You got to go in in the same yeah. state. And so she did. And she was like, hey, where's the table? <laughs> you know, yeah, right. It does fine. Right. But she passed the test to flying colors. Yeah. That's yeah. uh, so funny. It's you know, there was a I'll tell you another crazy story about that. Years ago. My my whole family got together for uh, Thanksgiving, I think it was. And so we, we flew up, I'm from the Chicago area. So we flew up and we're all at my brother's house and my dad and mom are there and my wife and I, and, and then nieces and nephews and stuff. And uh, three nieces, my brother, Steve has one daughter, Emily, and my brother, Dick had two daughters, uh, Michelle and Rachel. All three are really smart and they're just genius kids. And they uh, nothing but A's the whole time they were in school. And they're almost the same age. I mean, they're, Rachel is the oldest and then Emily's a year behind and then Michelle's a year behind. And uh, they always got nothing but straight A's and they skipped classes and stuff. I mean, they skipped, you know, skipped grades. I mean, the whole thing, they're really brilliant. And we're getting ready to go out. Everybody's going to go out to dinner. And they said, but the girls have to study. They need about 45 minutes because they've got stuff to do. And then we're going to go out to dinner and that's all they have to do for the whole weekend. And once they're done, then that's great. So we said, okay, let them study. So they go into a den and the rest of us go in another room and they crank up the stereo. You know, we we're joking before about putting on records. They crank it up and they're listening to Britney Spears and Christina Aguilera. You know, this is back in the day, you know, there's teenagers, they're all grown now. So, 
and they crank this up and I peek in and they're literally walking and dancing and with their notebooks and stuff and books and they're just they're they're up and moving and and literally dancing to Britney Spears doing math homework and stuff wow. and my dad is freaking out <laughs> he says how can they possibly study how can they possibly learn all that? I can't even think with that racket that's so I can't even think straight what is what's going on look at them they're not they're supposed to be sitting down dude. and I said well listen dad just hang, hang on dad uh I know I can't study like that either. And I know you can't study like that. That's not how we work. But how are they doing in school? And he goes, and, uh, okay, I guess they're doing something right. I said, well, yeah, they're straight A students. They're brilliant. He says, so I guess maybe we'll just leave them alone. He says, okay, we'll leave them alone. And, and later, as an illustration for him, I said, dad, we're going to ask Emily this question. I just want you to notice what happens because I explained state dependent learning to okay. him. And he was, he was a brilliant man too. He was a trained chemist, but he was, you know, he didn't know a lot about psychology, but he, he got it you know, right away. Mm -hmm. And I said, Emily, when just curious, you're listening to Christina Aguilera here and, and, and Britney Spears. When you go to take your test, do you like hear them in your head? She looks at me and goes, well, duh, Uncle Sid. <laughs> I went, okay. And my dad goes, oh, that's right. It's the, they're carrying the, the information over along with the music. You know, it's, it's like controls their state and they can manage it. She just like, you know, duh. Okay, I got, right. I got it. You know, they'll, they'll tell us, you know, sometimes the kids just, they come up on this stuff themselves. They, they learn. Yeah. And, uh, it's, it's interesting that you should talk about state like that because you know um in reading and studying i was not 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 very long ago honestly it was it was relatively recently i i had a little bit of a of a breakthrough <laughs> glad i'm glad i'm learning about, quick i need one <laughs> glad i'm learning about learning now <laughs> um but uh, you know, I, I I try to get reading done. I've been listening to books on, on on Audible, which has been really good. I've gone through a lot books a lot faster that way. But then I was I was thinking like, why I have these books I want to read? They're not available on audio, like you know, Uncommon Therapy, Jay Haley. I'm, I want to read yeah. this book, not I can't listen to it, and I want to I want to read this. I've got a number of books like in that category. And yet, when I sit down and read, I just kind of like read a page or two, and then I start getting sleepy and. You know? <laughs> so it takes me forever. Oh, sorry. Yeah. yeah. Okay. It takes me forever to read a book. And then I remembered many years ago, Tony Robbins talked about speed reading. And for him, it wasn't so much about a technique from the speed reading people, but it was about getting into a peak state where he's like, okay, now I'm going to read and go, I'm going to devour this book and read. And, you know, he'd do it standing up and, you know, and he'd, he'd just go through the book as, as fast as he can in that sort of state. That he put himself into and um i've i've tried that and it it is a much better way for me to to read a book that i want to actually you know read rather than listen to um to... i may know where that came from oh really i'm not positive because i you know he may have learned this some other way but well, this this is a long but, long time ago but so you're i know you're a long long time ago okay all right a long time ago I think Richard and Robert, maybe some of the other ones, they modeled this guy 
who was well known. It was a speed reader. He could read, you know, like 50,000 words a minute kind of thing. And this is what he did. They, ah. they modeled this guy. They spent time with him and they'd say, sense. what do you do? And he would pick up the book and he put it back down and he would have to get ready. I mean, he would walk back and forth, put it up and slam it down and he'd do this. And then, then he, and when he was ready to go, he just could just devour the thing. Sounds and identical. Read. Yeah. Like a million miles an hour. And he, sometimes you read the book four or five times, you know, just to get all the stuff in, he'd go through it over and over and over again, but he was doing it so fast. And I think that may also be where some of the ideas from photo reading came from. I don't know if you ever did a photo reading course, but it's I, I never did. Course. I never did, but I, I, I will say that uh, I, I know a lot about it. I never took the course, but I know a lot of you. You found it. Have you taken the course? Or you find it fascinating? I sponsored the course twice down here because I wanted to take it and I wanted to learn more about it. And I sponsored it twice. And uh, we had a great teacher. And she did these interesting things. Apparently they do this in all the photo reading courses, but it's sort of uh, the convincers that you need to know that it's working. Mm -hmm. So for anybody listening to this, photo reading is not speed reading. Speed reading might get you up to about 10,000 words a minute if you're really good at it. Photo reading, you start at 25,000 words a minute and go up. So you're literally reading as quickly as you can turn the page. Now, one of the things that you have to do is you have to have a way to turn the page fast enough. So you turn it differently. This is something I remember Richard talking about way back when in the Evelyn Woods reading course, which was like the original speed reading course, they had you when you sat down to read, you would reach over the top of the page and turn the page. It was Grinder told us this. Why? Because everybody, when they start doing speed reading, the moment they turn the page the, norm, the way they normally would, that's an anchor to go back to your old method. Uh -huh. So they built in a physical anchor for the new method, basically, which mm. replaces the anchor for the old one. So you have to do the same thing in photo reading. So you have to physically do something different. That's where all this physical stuff around the reading becomes important, right? Because you're, you're, you're interrupting the old anchors that you have by replacing them with a whole new system of okay. holding the book. The yeah. other thing that she did with us was she did a couple of things, but the most interesting thing was she passed out pocket dictionaries, you know, and it, you visualize a dictionary on the inside, there's four columns, right? Because each page was like split into half. So there's a bunch of definitions in another and then more on the other page. So you're looking at four columns of information. And she said, I want you to speed read this for 90 seconds or photo read it for 90 seconds, right? And photo reading means you have to go into a very specific state. Most of the course is teaching you how to go into this very specific state where you visualize a certain way. And it's a, it's a very specific trance state. So she said, I don't have speed, you know, photo read this for 90 seconds. And you're reading about a page a second. I got to about page 100 in 90 seconds. She said, now put it down. Now, when you've done that, you have no idea consciously what you just did because your conscious mind can't follow that quickly. You can't, you don't even clearly see what you're reading right so you don't have any idea what you just read so she said here's what i want you to do as a test for yourself i want you to think of a word that would have been in the part that you read so if you read like the first half of the dictionary think of a word that starts with you know the first half of the alphabet and just close your eyes and visualize the word and see it on the page where you believe that it was 
And now pick up the book and open the book and see if that's where it is. And we did it three times. And all three times, the word was exactly on the page where I had visualized it. <laughs> that's not an accident. Everybody in the room was like that. Everybody was seeing the word exactly where it was on the page. So we knew it was in there, right? Then the trick is how to activate it afterwards. And I don't remember what this guy did. You know, the guy was attacking the book and all that stuff. I don't remember how he activated the information. So we know it's there in your head, but you have to do something to get it back out into your consciousness. Right, right, right. Because it's, it's not the way that we normally read. So I had one of my students who had actually taken this course before I brought somebody down. She'd gone somewhere to do it. And she was a college student when she took it. It was her first year of college. She was a very bright girl as well. She was 15 when she went to college. And uh, she didn't have any money. So the first uh, few days of school, she got the list of all the books she was supposed to buy. And she went and sat in the bookstore and photo read all the books. Huh. like three or four or five times till sometimes they just kick her out because she was in the way right but right. she photo read all the textbooks for the semester everything four four or five times went through them and then just activated and everything like she was supposed to and she got nothing but straight a's she never went back to those books for the whole semester and that's how she did college she would just photo read all the stuff huh. so we have this capacity you know and and learning how to use it is really cool the most interesting thing was, and, and surveying all the people who took those classes that we had, because there were like 75 or 80 people in between the two classes that did it, they all said the same thing. They all knew how to photo read at the end, because you really did learn how to do it. And most of us weren't doing it, but it changed the way we read so dramatically hmm. that we were thrilled with what we'd learned. Hmm. You know, I, I don't read the same way that I did before that. I can, if I want to, I kept it as a choice because I'm one of those people who grew up reading one word at a time. Oh yeah, for with, sure. You know, That's with the voice in my head and all that. And I still do most of the time. That's but how I can, we are taught to read. That is exactly how we are taught to read. Right. So what we should be taught is different strategies. This is one of the other things that I remember Richard telling me about years ago. I probably said this in a workshop somewhere, but he said he had like five or different, five or six different ways he could read. Hmm. because for different kinds of material he read them different ways yeah. he said he used to in, inhale novels like crazy just one after the other after the other and he would do two things one he would uh skip over the parts that were dull and just go to the cool parts he'd just skim over them and you know get whatever he needed so he could keep the story going and just stop during the cool parts and read those really slowly and then let the pictures and the music come up he said he had to have music during hmm. his novel. So he had his own music. And he said he hated going to movies if he had seen, if he had read the book read the before, because his music was so much better than theirs, right? <laughs> he said their music just sucked and it made the movie just terrible and he hated it. I thought that was great. But but that was one of the things he said for technical stuff, you read a different way. And, you know, uh, yeah, for sure. So, you know, yeah, no, it would, be, having those it would be kind of pointless to speed read or photo read a novel um like for, yeah, instance, would, for instance i was reason I, I i saw this movie about it was called i think it was called genius i think that was the name of the movie and it was about uh thomas wolf the 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 writer and i'd never read any thomas wolf or anything but so i got um look homeward angel uh on audio uh, so i was listening to it on on audible um and some of the language was just 
it's gorgeous beautiful yeah absolutely and when god and talk about dull parts there was no story happening in these like five six pages of description you know i i'd listened about halfway through the book and and the plot had gone from like here to here i mean right (laughs) it was all description right yeah 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 that's that's that style of writing you know if you read some of those great right updike was like that you know just describe a uh, I have one of the, uh, I use as a demonstration for, for, uh, you know, visual language. He's got this, it's like a five or six page description of just driving down a road and it's so gorgeous. You could read yeah. it a hundred times. It's just yeah. lovely. Yeah. So yeah, I would never photo read that, you know, I just, it wouldn't be any fun. And be, uh, you and could do rather, it, but rather pointless. you know, yeah, but that's, that's the whole idea. And, and for some other things. So now I'm, I can skim through stuff if I'm just looking for things and, and and read a book very quickly if I want to. Mm. You know, if it's just something I want to have a few ideas and just kind of get the gist of it, I'll just fly through it. Um, but if it's something that's got a lot of detail that I want, then you don't do that, you know? And if it's something you really want, then of course, maybe you stop and take notes, right? So you, ha- you have to have these different different ways of doing stuff. It's like with everything that we do. Let me just, you know, let me just, experience you let me just stop you because I want to I want to switch gears here. I want to be respectful of, of your time. Um, but some questions I wanted to ask if you don't mind. Yeah, because um, for a lot of people. Yes. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> that photo reading thing is just wait till I ask the question and then. Okay. Oh, OK. Got it. Sorry. <laughs> it's a linear. OK, we're back to linear thing. Yeah. Um. So for many people, they uh, go to Tony Robbins workshops these days and you learn all about Tony's stuff and Tony's technologies, as he calls it and stuff. And then then they bring in Sid Jacobson. Yeah, to teach a little NLP. To teach a little NLP. To whip a little NLP on these folks. So um, number one, how the heck did that come about? And number two, um, what do you teach them? So there is. there's something they call the Leadership Academy. Okay. And it's for people that they're going to make into their uh, group leaders and um, coaches and folks like that. So it's not it's not a, like a personal development workshop like the other things that they do, you know, like the Unleash the Power and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a different, if it's a different course, it's an actual training course. And it's just about all NLP, really. But these folks don't know that it, that a lot of what they're learning is NLP. They just learn these techniques. They don't know where they came from. They don't, and they don't have a they don't have a framework for it. Yeah. And Robert Diltz was teaching these for a while, and it's just two hours out of a four day thing. So it's a little two hour slot. And Robert was teaching it every year, and uh, he's had a schedule conflict one year. They changed the schedule at the last minute or something. He couldn't do it. So they said, well, you got to give us a name. Who can we use instead? He said, we'll call Sid. Sid will do it. So I've been doing it since then. Hmm. And uh, I guess I I think I've done eight times, eight or nine times, something like that. And it's great fun because it's a wonderful group. They're all people who are primed and ready for whatever you're going to give them. And they've all been through all these other workshops and they're very cohesive and they love each other. and it's And it's just a high energy kind of experience. My goal with them is to do several things. One is to show them that what they're learning is NLP, and this is where it comes from, and here's a framework to put it in. 
So I explained to him a little bit about how all those rapport exercises actually work, what it is that you're doing with people, what, what's happening to them on the inside. They all know that you're supposed to match people's body language and stuff. They don't know why. They don't know what it's for. You know, they don't know that it's to, it's to, you know, to, uh, to get certain parts of each person's brain kind of wired the same. They don't know that it's about creating a sense of familiarity and safety, you know, and this is something, uh, so was, for a second, let me talk about this, because this is something Richard told me years ago, and I always tell him this story. He was talking to Virginia Satir one day, and he asked her a kind of a seminal question. He said, Virginia, here's something I don't understand. We're counselors, we're helping people, people come to us, and sometimes they are in big trouble by the time they get to us. And we want them to make a change. And some of these people are to the point where if they don't make a change, they're in a life-threatening situation. You know, this could be battered women, it could be guys who are doing some really dangerous thing, or women are doing some dangerous kind of work, right? Uh, or whatever, battered men. It could be anything that's dangerous. Mm -hmm. And like I, you know, like I said, I've done a lot of talking with people here in the oil patch. Some of these uh, plants are run very, very well. Most of them are run very, very well. They've got OSHA safety rules and and everything. And some of them are skirting the rules. They're not doing a very good job, and people get hurt. And if people make a big mistake in uh, uh, what's called a cat cracker, it's a catalytic cracker. That's the the big thing you see. In an, in an oil refinery that turns oil into gasoline. And if people make the wrong kind of mistake, it explodes. Oh. It blows up and people die and shatter windows for 30 miles in every direction. And, you know, it's, it's bad. So his, his question is, why doesn't their natural survival instinct just kick in? I mean, we're we're human beings. We're like other animals. Survival, you know, is very important to us. If we're in a life-threatening situation, why wouldn't we just leave? Isn't survival the most powerful drive in human mm -hmm. beings? And Virginia said, no. The most powerful drive in human beings is to do what's familiar over and over and over and over again, sometimes up to the point that it kills us. And I thought about that a lot. And I took that to heart and I said, well, that must be why rapport is so important. That must be what we're doing with people hmm. when we're establishing rapport. We're creating that sense of familiarity hmm. that breeds not just trust, but also understanding. If, if I'm, and where does the word familiar come from? What's the root of that is family, right? So what do we learn? Yeah. We learn from our family how to be with other people. And if our family is safe, we're with other people, we want to create that same sense of safety. We understand the family. We understand our tribe, our right. group. That's what that's about. So you uh, you spend two hours explaining this to Tony Robbins people? I do not. <laughs> I spend <laughs> a few minutes going well, through this with them, and I talk about it in more detail than that. It's, it's an interesting discussion and it, and it opens a lot of eyes. Uh -huh. Then I get into um, some other stuff around states and I do uh, some things with them on submodalities. I do some things with them on change. 
I have a, a change exercise that's a fun exercise. And you could try this sometime with people. I'll just tell you how to do it. Anybody could do this. And it's one I got from um from somebody in London a long time ago, Ian McDermott, the trainer yeah. in London, sure. NLP trainer. I've known for three, four hundred years. And we were doing a thing at NLPU together. You know, Robert, Robert said, you know, you guys train together this afternoon. Okay, cool. So he does this exercise that I, I modify, but it's a great exercise. You just have somebody come up on stage and talk about something they've been trying to change, but they haven't been effective yet. And come up with all the reasons why they should stay the same. And he says, and I'm going to act as your advocate. I'm going to help you find all the reasons why you should stay exactly the way you are and not make this change you've been trying to make. So, and, it, and it's real funny too. It's a fun thing to do because you get somebody who says, well, I'm trying to lose weight. Okay, tell me why you should stay the same. People go, well, you know, I hate the exercise. Oh, exercise sucks. You're right. Okay, write that one down, right? <laughs> exercise is terrible. And I'd have to get up earlier in the morning and I need, oh, you need your sleep. No, you should sleep. Don't get up earlier. That's bad for you. You just keep doing all this stuff. I have to buy new clothes. Oh no, that's gotta be expensive. No, and you got, what do you do with the old ones? And you just come up with all these, Thing, but you're getting it out of the person. Yeah. You know, they're they're giving you all the things that have been stopping them, right? It's the what stops you question done on a much deeper level. Mm -hmm. And it's an interesting thing happens because after a couple of minutes of this, people will dry up and say, Well, I give you those four or five, that's all I got. And you just wait a couple of seconds. And then they'll start coming up with some other ones that might be deeper. Hmm. You know, like, well, people won't look at me the same way or my whole family's overweight or, you know, I've always been this role or whatever it might be. And and this is, doesn't matter what the change is, right? doesn't matter what it is. So learning French and moving to another town doesn't matter. So you get all that stuff and then you get what are the reasons why they should change? And usually you get these intellectual things like if somebody loses weight. I know I'll be a healthier person. Okay. You know, the doctor told me I should lose 24 pounds. Okay. You know, and my, my, you know, my mom said, they give you all this stuff that has no juice in it most of the mm -hmm. time. And you could just see and hear the difference in the person. So I do this as an exercise where I have them get into groups of five or six, everybody talk about something they've been trying to change and pick the juiciest one and work with that person. Everybody work with that person. I haven't just notice what's the difference. And they see it right away. And it's not 100% of the time. Sometimes it, it goes a different way. But, but a lot of the time, you can see that all the energy the person has is around staying the same, which is why they stay the same, mm -hmm. right? It's, and that's their familiarity. Oh, yeah. So I'm, you know, I tie it back to gotcha. that, right? Good. And then I always finish them with an exercise where I do an internal submodality thing around the voices, you know, the voices that you have in your head. Because when people talk to themselves about this thing they haven't been able to do, it's often a very nasty voice. <laughs> you know, they're yelling at them, saying, get it, come on, you can do it, get it. What's the matter with you? You're What's the matter with you? Yeah, your failure, what's the matter? And all this stuff comes up, or parent voices come up. Sometimes it's not even their voice. And then I have them think about something that they know about themselves to be absolutely true. And talk to themselves about that. And I have them identify the submodalities completely of each voice, the location, everything. And they're usually vastly different voices. Mm -hmm. And then 
talk to themselves about this thing they're trying to change in the other voice the voice that tells them the truth right yeah, yeah, yeah. and the changes are profound in people yeah. just doing that exercise so i'm i'm tying all this stuff together the whole way you know that's all it's all a big open loops and stuff that i kind of close at the end but it, yeah. it, but it's a fun time too and um you know we have we'll have maybe a thousand people there and and uh and it's just great fun it's great fun to do so i i tie all this up i'm doing some other stuff with them as well sometimes i'll do another little demonstration or two it's a pretty busy two hours <laughs> yeah it sounds great sounds yeah, really cool fun. and 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 when you do the summer dallies uh, have you noticed um because i think one of the things that I've, I've certainly noticed over the years is that different parts of nlp sort of appear as a whole new thing of like emdr is yeah, 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 yeah. You know, now yeah. this so this was the thing we discovered. Um, yeah, right. <laughs> and and um, some modalities. I mean, I found to be true that for for the one of the biggest drivers in the some modalities list is location. That can be, yeah, yeah. If you move it over here, and I think like Lucas Dirks in in in, in Belgium mm -hmm. or wherever he's from Denmark does this whole mental space thing, right? Yeah, which is pretty much yeah. some modalities based on location. Yeah, yeah, Lucas is a bright guy. Oh, yeah. he's great. I love it. He's been on my yeah. podcast. Wonderful man. Um, and great stuff. Have you found that be true with, with a voice as well when you're doing this exercise? Oh, that, oh they're always in different places, 100% of the time. They're just not, not always, and it's completely unpredictable. They're just in different places. Okay. So when one could be here and one could be here, or one could be there and one could be, you know, they could be anywhere. They're just different. I gotcha. And that's the only thing that I'm looking for is for people to notice that there's a difference. And then, of course, the 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 discussion afterwards and the question becomes, I wonder how many voices you have in there. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And yeah. where and who they came from. And what would you like to do about all of them? You know, yeah. the ones that are really useful, use them and, you know, concentrate on that. I mean, I think it's it's important. And, and frankly, I mean, you, you do hypnosis. I mean, I, I use this hypnotically all the time. I always have people go back to this voice. When I'm coaching people, I do this exercise with them. I mean, a lot of them have come to me from that workshop, but others haven't. And I, I do this exercise with them because I want them to have that voice. I want them to identify that voice. And I'm, quite often I'll say, just close your eyes and sit back and ask that voice what it thinks about what we're talking about or what you should do or whatever it might be. Hmm. And it's, it's great. It helps people's decision-making tremendously. The voice of truth. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Pretty, pretty interesting thing. And, and I, I don't even know where I came. I don't even know how I came up with it, but it just, you know, there it is. It's a good exercise. I've actually heard that before. So it's, um, I, I will venture to say it, it's been around. I'm sure I stole it from someone. <laughs> I just don't know who. That, yeah. but... I don't know who, you know, <laughs> David or Connie Ray are watching this going, I got no heart. Yeah, I can't tell you how many times I've I've said something and somebody said, "Yeah, I heard Richard Bandler say that." It's like, damn it. That's where it came <laughs> from. Damn it. Get out of there! Yeah. Stop it, Richard. There's Get another out. one. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. 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 Well, gosh, you know, this is a this is a joy to be speaking with you. And I've as I said both now to David and Connie Ray, I could do this all day. Yeah, me too. Just me too. We could just tell stories. Yeah. Uh, and I do fun. want to be respectful of your time and also the people who have tuned in to do this. And just one more time, this is sure, sure. a fundraiser 
for um, Marilyn and, and Jerry CV really based in a way it's for Jerry. Yeah. He needs yeah. therapy, but she's paying for it. Um, yeah. So yeah, thank you for, for contributing at your time and your. Listen, this, this is what, this is what we're about. I hope, you know, I, I'll tell you one other quick story. This is uh, I always, you ask what I do in the Tony Reps. I always finish with this story years ago. I was going to the grocery store one day, one afternoon, pulled into a parking space, no space, you know, just empty space on each side, no cars around. And I was listening to the radio and I was wanted to continue listening. I didn't want to, I wasn't in a hurry to get in the store. I was listening to something really cool on the radio. So I was listening and all of a sudden my car goes and I look over and a woman has gotten out of her car pulled in next to me. I didn't even notice it and slammed her car door into my car. Right. And I'm a normal human being. And I'm like, mm-hmm. and I look over and I'm trying to get her attention. She doesn't even see me. Closes her door, starts to walk away. And I go, wait a minute. You know, part of me goes, uh, time to go old lady hunting, you know, <laughs> but I don't do that. So I just, yeah, I just got out and I said, uh, ma'am, did I speak to you for a minute? She didn't hear me. She kept walking. Uh, ma'am, excuse me. Keeps walking. Uh, pardon me. I'm almost shouting. And she she finally hears me and turns around. Yes. And I said, um, can I talk to you for just a second? Sure. I said, you know, you pulled in. I was parked right there. You pulled in right next to me. Did you know that when you opened your car door, you slammed it into my door? And she goes, I did that. I mean, she honestly did not realize she had done that. And mm-hmm. she hit it hard enough that the car bounced. Right. right. And I said, you really didn't know. Is it hurt? Oh my God. Do I, is it going to be expensive to fix? Oh, let me give you some money. She starts reaching in her purse. I said, nah, 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 nah. I said, well, let's go, just go take a look. It was a little chip in the paint. She said, Oh, but you got to have that fixed. It's going to be expensive. I said, nah, 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 nah. I said I'm not so worried about that. I said, you really didn't notice that you did that. She said, no, I didn't know. I had no idea. I said, for you not to notice that, you must be really distracted. What's going on? And she bursts into tears. And she says, I just got this terrible phone call from my daughter. She's been rushed to the hospital. There's something very wrong. We don't know what it is. Mm. And I'm worried sick. And she asked me to go pick up her kids. She's got little kids. I've got to get some food at the store. I've got to cook them dinner, pack them each a bag, pack her a bag. I got to drop them off. I've got to take her stuff down to the hospital. I'm worried sick. I don't know what's wrong. And, and I'm just at my wits end. And I said, I'm really sorry that's happened to you. I said, but I have another problem with you right now. She said, what? I said, as distracted as you are, you just told me you're going to be driving around with little kids in your car. I said, I don't want you to do that. You could have an accident. You're in no shape to drive. She goes, you're right. I said, I know. So here's what I'd like you to do. So you have a pen and paper in your purse? She says, yes. So you see this coffee house over here? It's a, little coffee. It's a local Starbucks. It's called PJ's. Good little coffee house. I said, yeah. So you see PJ's? I want you to go into PJ's and I want you to order a cup of coffee, 
or don't order a cup of coffee. They don't care. They go sit in there. There's always soft jazz playing. It's a calming place. I want you to sit down and write down everything you need to do. Get all that stuff out of your head onto a piece of paper. Who do you need to call? What do you need to do? Get yourself organized. And in 10 minutes, you'll be in a much better state. And then you can go take care of all this stuff in a much better way. Does that sound like a good idea to you? She said, that's a, yes, thank you. That's a really great idea. I'm going to go do that. And she walked over and I said, and good luck to you. I'm sorry this happened. Good luck to your family. I think that that's who we are. That's what we're wired for, right? If we're in NLP, we didn't get into NLP just to take people's money to be better salespeople. I mean, some people did, but most of us got into it because we care about other people. We want to help people. I'm that guy who is irritating <laughs> to people because if I see somebody in a bad state, I'm not going to leave them like that. Even if it's a stranger, even if it's a stranger who just dented my door or just chipped the paint in my door, I don't care. If I see somebody like that, I'm going to say, what's going on? You need some help? Something wrong? Can I do something? And I know that I'll have something I can give to that person that I've learned over the years that will help them at least a little bit. And I know that when we're struggling, we've got a whole bunch of stuff bouncing around in our head. We need to externalize that stuff because there's too much going around and we get confused. And getting it out on paper is just a quick, easy way to do that. So I wanted to give that to her. I'm, I'm that guy like Connie Ray, like David, like you, and all the other people that you're going to interview. We're those people who would step up when somebody needs help. So talking to you for an hour is a joy besides doing something good for somebody. And I don't think there would be any other answer than sure. What time do you want to see me? Right. And I hope we get to do this again, Doug. It's always great fun to talk with you. Great. Well, thank you, my friend. You too. Thanks very much. This has been the Essential Coaching Skills Podcast. Thank you for being here. It's a pleasure seeing you again. Hope to see you again real soon. Come back next week when we have another gripping and exciting episode of the Essential Coaching Skills Podcast. And if you want to, you can find out more about us, each and every one of us, at EssentialCoachingSkills.com. Thanks.